Welcome to Visibility Radio. I'm Kenneth Poir, and this program is entitled Just Why It Matters. We'll be talking to people who are subject experts as well as people who live with a vision impairment and other forms of disabilities. My guests and I will cover a range of topics including arts, sports, communications and a whole lot more. Anything that will make a difference to live a full life. So join us on Just Why It Matters. Today I'm speaking with Davinia Lafroy and Davinia is a clinical psychologist and she has her own practice and let's talk to Davinia. Davinia, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kenneth. Now, I'd like to begin with perhaps you giving us a background of your vision impairment and how it all came about. Mm-hmm, sure. So I was diagnosed with a condition called Stargardt macular dystrophy when I was 11 years old. I have a brother who also has a condition and vision loss, and he was diagnosed before me. And because of that, I had some pretty regular checkups. And when I was 11, they they found some deterioration in the back of my eye on the retina. And then I was diagnosed from there. Since that time, I've been re-diagnosed with another condition called cone rod dystrophy, which um, presents quite similarly to Stargardt's. So yes, I guess I have one of those <laughs> one of those conditions that it, that affects my eyesight. And how did it affect you as a person? Because eleven is mm. still quite a young age. Mm. Well, I guess having a family member with the condition already, and as a family, we'd adjusted to his needs and his earlier journey through vision loss. We were perhaps a little practiced and a little ready for it when when it happened in myself as well. But I guess. It, for me, the condition came came along very, very gradually. So I and and kids are so good at adjusting anyway. Just mm. made some very gradual little adjustments to the way I do things and the way I perceive things to compensate. Did it stop you from doing the things that normal you know, kids all do? Mm, probably initially, yes. I'd say yes, initially it stopped me from doing things until I learned how to do things my own way and in different ways and then I really have tried ever since that point to just to still do the things that I want to just in, in a way that works for me. But I guess initially I probably didn't play as much sport as some of, of, of the other kids in my class. You know, for example, when, when we were playing cricket in primary school, I'd probably just stand out of that. Or if we were playing other games that had, you know, things that perhaps you need to be able to see quite well to mm. participate in. So, yeah, I probably sat out a few things initially, but that hasn't been the case later on. Right. Mm. Now, I want to ask you about your journey into mm. the field of psychology. Where did it begin? What sparked your interest and um, how did it all come about? Ah, well, there was a few things that happened that got me really interested and they all sort of happened at a similar time. So I think in that way, perhaps it was meant, meant to be and meant for me. But I... Um, when I was at school, we had a series of presenters that came out and spoke about different careers that they had. And I was just really struck by the psychologist that came out and spoke to our class. I think it was to our year 10 class. I just found her so fascinating and interesting. And then I also had an aunt who will have an aunt um, who's a social worker. And I found her stories of her work really fascinating and so that's sort of has some crossovers with psychology. So so that's, I guess, how I found out about the field. And from there, 
I I wanted to choose, you know, having having had my condition for a couple of years at that point and not knowing what the prognosis would be, I wanted to choose a job that I'd be able to do really well even if I had vision loss. And I just figured that, you know, talking to people, which is sort of what, what you're mostly doing when you're a psychologist, <laughs> is something that I, my vision is not going to stop me from doing. So there was a, a practical side to it there. So from then on, you mm-hmm. had this idea in your mind which you wanted to realize to become mm-hmm. a psychologist mm-hmm. now how difficult was it as you begin mm-hmm. and i i'm assuming you first encountered or came across the the subject of psychology in high school we didn't actually study it at high school. I think they, they do now. Um, it is an elective in year 11 and 12, but it wasn't when I was at, or at least it wasn't at my high school. So it was more outside of school and, and as I mentioned, through the, the presenter that visited our school. But then I, I, when I left school, I sort of, psychology was an interest, but I was even more interested in English literature. So I, I did a, a degree, a double degree in history and literature, and then I found my way back into psychology from right. there. Okay. Mm. Now, talking about higher education, yes. it must have been quite a tenuous situation at different points mm-hmm. in time, being legally blind and mm-hmm. trying to go through the reams and reams of material. Oh, how did you come How did you absolutely. overcome those? Oh, I think... Um, even you just saying that actually <laughs> fills me with quite a lot of stress and it was just so long ago. It was so, so difficult. I'm incredibly glad that I did it and so, so pleased that it's over um, <laughs> because it was really, really difficult. And I think with that, I learned to skim, read and retain information very quickly and mm. easily. I think I've thankfully got a very good memory and I've Perhaps I've had to develop that, but I can read things and retain them really well. So that's great. But And I think, I'm sure a lot of people with vision, vision loss have noticed that, that they have that capacity or they have to really build that capacity. But, yeah, the reams and reams of information was, was really difficult. So one of the, the social worker aunt that I mentioned before, she became my reader twice a week. So she would read textbooks with me and go through this pain with me. And my mum has always been really helpful in that respect too. And then, of course, audio books and, and just talking to other people, I guess, more than sitting down in the library and reading things and researching. So lots of different ways I had to, to get through the, all of those, the reams of reading. <laughs> now, what about the practicum? I mean, you had to do practicum, I, mm-hmm. I imagine. Was that any, you know, was that a point of the education process that was also difficult? Mm. I think by the time I got to practicums, I'd learnt that... I need to prepare other people in the workplace as to how to support me and how to how to make it so that I can actually do my job and do my practicums. So where other students might just kind of rock up to their first practicum on the first day at, at five to nine and then jump in and start, I would go a couple of days before and perhaps a couple of times to, to the place where I do my practical and I would educate them basically as to what I'm going to need to be able to do this job really well. So there's a lot of preparation and a lot of thought and a lot of communication that I found I needed to do with other people to to do those practicums and then of course subsequently to do my job as well when I'm working with other people 
And I found in general, if people know how to support you, they really love doing it. If they don't know how, they can get quite anxious and not do much (laughs) at all that's helpful. So I've just, yeah, I've just learned to really prepare people and then I can, can, can do the practicum. Sometimes in the practicals, I've had to edit down what I'm able to do and, and do more of what I'm able to do really well. So sometimes I'm sort of thinking of an example, a practicum in a hospital setting. I wasn't so great at, at walking around hospitals and, and finding patients that needed to be spoken to and finding their room numbers and things like that. <laughs> but I could do more of other things like being in a, a stationary position or a, or a set office and having people come to me. Mm-hmm. Going back to the days where you were at university, mm-hmm. now it's not often that you have someone who's vision impaired coming in and saying, right, you know, I want to I wanna specialise in this field of mm-hmm. health science. Were any of your lecturers or professors a little bit unnerved or found mm-hmm. themselves sort of, you know, off balance and trying to figure out how do I support this undergraduate? How do I support yes. this graduate student? Oh, I had such a such a wonderful variety, really. And I, I say wonderful in terms of the variety, not necessarily the quality. I, I've, I had some lecturers that really bent over backwards. They provided free additional tutoring to, you know, for every lecture. Some of them were really fantastic. A lot of them, well, not a lot of them, but a couple of them I developed sort of personal relationships as well, with as well. And, and they gave me a lot of extra support and help, which I appreciated. You know, other lecturers, not at all. I mean, I... One 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 undergraduate lecturer I can think of actually said to my tutor that vision impaired people were more trouble than they were worth. Oh my! God. Um, yeah, and so and that that can well that really knocked me at the mm. time, but also made me a lot more determined, and I'm thankful that that was my my eventual response to that. So yeah, I really I had to battle with some lecturers and not at all with mm. others. So it was a bit of a mixed bag. Were there any moments in in those days where, apart from encountering an uncooperative lecturer mm. or an uncooperative co-worker, were there moments where you just said, this is just beyond me, maybe mm. I'm just being a little bit too ambitious, should I perhaps do something a little bit more down my way given mm. my vision impairment with yes. those moments? Um, oh, many of those moments. I think I probably had one or two of those moments most semesters and I think it was really important for me to indulge those moments and stop and see it as a signpost to take a break, perhaps take a week off, put down the pen and the books for mm. a little bit, talk to talk to my family, talk to my supports, find other ways of doing things. I you know, going through uni was a very emotional journey mm. for me and there were many points where I nearly pulled out. I, I took a year off after about four years and just worked part-time and did some voluntary work and, and found that I, I got my confidence back and then I went went back in and, and kept on studying. So it was the time to recollect and mm. recompose and exactly. find your footing again and yes. uh, go back in. Yes, yep. And so sometimes that, that comes with a bit of pain and frustration because, of course, that prolongs, well, for me, it prolonged my degree, but it also m- meant that I could stay resilient and stay strong and be able to complete it really that's, well. That's very good. Mm. Now, you talked about memory, and I've been really interested because I've been developing different, perhaps maybe even unconsciously, 
methods of remembering things. Mm. Do you have any advice for uh, people who are vision impaired to say, well, this is this is perhaps one of the many ways that you can actually uh, provide yourself with a methodology of remembering things better? Mm. I think there's a few things. Mm. I think when I'm reading um, or or listening, I am very present and in the moment, and you can't sustain that level of concentration for long periods of time necessarily. Mm. So what I try to do is I really focus, I stay present, and then I disengage entirely, and that might mean closing your eyes and taking yourself off to a spot where no one can talk to you and you don't have any stimulation. It might only be for five minutes, mm. and then coming back in and being really present again because I just you just don't encode memory so well mm. if you're not concentrating and being very present. So I guess that's that's about taking breaks and then being very present right. when, you're, when you're not on break, being, I guess, quite precise with yourself. Doing things like, you know, fiddling with your phone while you're um, listening <laughs> to a lecture, the, all of those things. Completely out. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now, how do you deal with those sort of situations where the, the conversation is dynamic and there are a few people mm. going on, but there are things that you need to remember. Is mm. is there a system that you've developed to filter out the, mm. if you will, noise? Is this in a, a sort of lecture type situation or more well, it could social? Be a lecture, it could be a social mm. setting, or it could even be a conference where yes. there are several things going on and you want to distill the mm. lessons from an encounter, but mm. there's the background noise. Yes. I think I, I mean, those particular situations I find quite challenging. I, I want to say sometimes overwhelming, mm. but hopefully it doesn't get to that point and they're just more challenging. Mm. Going into something like a workshop or a conference, I'm very well rested beforehand. I really make sure I get good sleep the night before. I make sure I've exercised in the morning. The people that I'm with, I will often tell them that, you know, I'm probably not going to chat so much with you. If you talk to me during this particular aspect of the conference, I'm, I'm probably not going to answer you. Um, so I actually prepare them so it's not doesn't seem quite so rude. Um, but I, I, I think it for me it's more about the preparation right. beforehand, putting yourself in the most rested mental state so you can absorb as much as you can at the time and then again it's about taking breaks so I guess in a conference sort of situation I probably wouldn't have lunch with people mm. I'd go off and I'd be on my own mm. even if that means you have to go to the bathroom for 20 minutes <laughs> or just take a walk around the block I try not to talk too much to people and get too distracted on those those kind of days with right. those kind of demands right. now Coming back to the role of psychology and people with disabilities, do you think there is a, for want of a better word, mm. a strong connection between someone who has a disability and their need to understand the benefits of psychological therapy or you know getting the, the getting the assistance of a clinical psychologist? Mm. Absolutely, I think so. I mean, I don't think that therapy and clinical psychology is the right therapy for everybody. And I think people need to be, you know, perhaps to try it. And if it doesn't work for them to try another kind of therapy for them, which, you know, could be exercise or talking to their friends or finding their passion or, or it, you know, it could be something quite different 
as well. So I don't think it's for everybody, but I think it can be extremely helpful for a lot of people. I mean, as as we were discussing before the interview, Kenneth, the the rate of of mental health issues amongst mm. people with a disability is mm. disproportionately high, and and probably one of one of the primary supports for people with mental health issues is is psychological therapy. So right there, I think that makes it particularly important that people with a disability have access to it and and know about it. I guess in my experience, and it, both my personal experience and my professional experience. People with a disability need very often to find their own way of living that might be quite different from what people without a disability have. And, and that's both in terms of their grief journey with with vision loss and coming to terms with it, but also some of the practical obstacles that they'll come up against. And being able to talk through their mindset, their thought processes, their flexibility and adaptability mentally with someone who's trained can be really helpful. Mm. What are some of the typical, if if there are any typical, mm. typical difficulties that your clients have cited mm. as a person with a disability? Mm. Social isolation is the one that comes to mind straight away. I don't think I've met a person with a vision impairment that hasn't of course, there are some people who skate through really nicely, but <laughs> who haven't had incredible problems meeting people, engaging in social activities, whether they're community-based or whether they're amongst their own family and friends. The very nature of social activities is that they're often sort of unplanned and have a level of spontaneity to them and flexibility, which is is so lovely, but sometimes for a, a person with vision loss, that can create a set of unknown circumstances that can appear to be impossible to navigate. Of course, they're not, and there's ways through those kind of social activities to keep people engaged, but that can take a lot of a lot of creative thinking to work out how to deal with those things. Mm. Now, you've mentioned spontaneity, and spontaneity mm. does add some level of, I suppose, surprise mm. or interest um, in a dynamic social situation. And spontaneity sometimes is something that we don't have the benefit to to experience because mm. of the nature of um, the, visual Im- the vision impairment. Mm-hmm. Do you think there are ways of mitigating mm-hmm. or assisting people to still take advantage of spontaneous interactions absolutely but i guess i guess those those ways are actually to be more planned in the lead up and the preparation to it so kind of planned spontaneity mm. i suppose which yeah. probably sounds like it doesn't make a lot of sense but i think if the person with a vision impairment has good supports around them which so often appears that it's not the case but if if they can have them and they can have dialogue with those people about what they find really hard in a given situation and what they don't mm. so what they'd like uh, some help with and what they don't want help with as well that can really free up the person to engage more fully i guess as a, as an example you know sometimes i think people without vision loss find it really hard to anticipate what you're going to find difficult. So if I was going to a party, the sorts of things I find really difficult 
are recognising people. I, I might have gone to school with someone for five years and seen them last week, but mm. I'll see them at a party, they'll start talking to me, and I'll be thinking, who on earth are you? <laughs> so m- most of my friends now are really well trained to drop that person's name into the conversation. Yeah. If I was going to do that independently, I'd be asking the host, who's going to be at this party specifically, <laughs> 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 and getting a bit more information about it so I can kind of get ready and anticipate that. But sometimes then they are not the things that, in in that example, that is what I would find really difficult. But people aren't perhaps um, helping you with that. They're helping you with something else that actually you're all over it and you don't need help with that at all. And then that can get actually quite frustrating. So I think it's just about having that dialogue with with the people around you. And sometimes that dialogue has to actually happen with strangers if you're if you're going to an event or something where that's right. It's not your people and. And so with that, it's getting comfortable with telling people, this is what I do need, this is what I don't need, which mm. can be quite quite a challenging thing to, to get really good at. You're right. Now, the other thing that I'd like to ask you is, does your own vision impairment and living with it and experiencing it firsthand, mm. does it lend itself well with your practice and assisting your clients? Mm. I think sometimes it does and sometimes it might even get in the way. Sometimes, I mean, I work very hard on this, but if if I'm seeing someone with vision loss, I've got to be very careful that I'm not projecting my own journey onto theirs and really allowing them to to move through their stages of, of perhaps grief and sadness and anger at the pace that is right for them and is psychologically healthy for them. And I think as well, not projecting, and by projection I mean sort of having your, your own stuff and, and putting them onto to somebody else, making assumptions that you perhaps haven't challenged. Right. Just staying with their journey, I think, just sort of being a good sounding board and reflection passage and, and someone who can help them to analyse for themselves, but making sure I'm, I'm not, yeah, having too much of my own experience within it. Seeing clients without vision loss, I also think um, my own impairment can be really quite helpful. It's it's a good opportunity to be able to share with them a vulnerability of my own. And when we share vulnerabilities with other people, we very often connect on a deeper level and, and have a little bit more security and compassion within the exchange and the relationship. So being able to tell someone who's going through some some really incredible difficulties that I too sometimes go through things that are hard and also continue to get up in the morning and, and do what I need to do can be really valuable, I think. Mm. So you become a source of inspiration and strength sometimes for someone who looks at you and says, well, you know, if Davinia's gone through these things and... Um, I think I can too. Mm, absolutely. And the, and the things that we're going through are all very different for each and every one of us. But nonetheless, I think that it can be really helpful for other people to see that in, in a health professional that they're working with. I also think that sometimes having a disability helps to take that imbalance away from a, a sort of professional to patient or professional to client relationship. It can be quite levelling. It can sort of bring bring everybody in the space back to a bit more of an equal footing. Oh, that's a that's a brilliant point. I I can't agree with that more. Mm. Now, Davinia, we are coming towards the end of our time on this episode, and I want to ask you, what are the 
biggest lessons you've drawn from your experience, both as a person with a vision impairment mm. and as a clinical psychologist? Sure. I think the most important thing that has been really helpful for me that I've learnt in my life in conjunction with all the experiences I've had but also with vision loss is not to limit myself by other people's expectations of what I can and can't do. And this is something that I think I have to continuously work on. But I I guess a little bit like the lecturer that I referred to who didn't think too kindly of people with vision impairment and many other people, I I do get told quite a lot that I can't do things. (laughs) And just having a response to that, which is, you know, if I want to do it, to actually go ahead and find a way to do it, I think that's probably the most been the most valuable thing for me to learn. And the the next thing is just to look after my own mental health. And that for me, I mean, it's very personal for everybody, but that for me is lots of talking, seeking support on an ongoing basis from the people and the animals and um, the spaces that I know give back to me is really important. Right. Now, talking about talking, mm. if anyone needs to talk to you, where would they reach you? Sure. Um, well, I have a website and that has a phone number and an email address on it. So people are welcome to go to that. That's www.divinialafroy.com. But my details are here at Visibility as well. I'm pretty, probably pretty easy to find. <laughs> Davinia, thank you very much for spending this time with us and for giving us an insight into the field of clinical psychology and also your life's journey. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us. And that's just why it matters. I'm Kenneth Poir, signing out. And this episode was edited by Oliver Rahim.